0: when we talk about divisive issues, it's best to start with reminding people what unites us. And first, we remind people that we have shared doctrines. We have a shared core gospel. We have the shared faith of thousands of years. We talk about a shared identity. Nick, you're not just a person. You're my brother in Christ. If we're Christians, you're my brother. The people in your church, if they're in Christ, they're your brothers and sisters. They're not just an opposing political party or whatever so we have a shared identity right john 15 there's one true vine and we are branches in the true vine we are connected to christ and so that is our identity and then we talk about shared mission the great commandment great commission every single christian is called to love god love your neighbors yourself and to make and multiply disciples
1: On this episode of Theology for the People, I speak with two great scholars who have written a very timely and useful book together called Preaching to a Divided Nation, a seven-step model for promoting reconciliation and unity. Drs. Matthew Kim and Paul Hoffman met at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Dr. Hoffman now pastors a church in Rhode Island, and Dr. Kim is currently a professor at Truett Seminary at Baylor University in Texas. Doctors Kim and Hoffman are passionate about the Bible's vision of the reconciliation of all things in Christ, and they care deeply about the body of Christ and the mission of God, and they share how this theological vision can play out practically in the way that we minister in a world which is constantly plagued by division. We talk about how and when Christians should address hot topics in our society, and we also give some guiding principles for helping people navigate the cultural moments that we find ourselves in. So, check the show notes for links to their books, and here's the episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady. I'm joined today by two new friends, Paul Hoffman and Matthew Kim, both doctors. Glad to have you with us today, and let's begin by having you introduce yourselves.
0: So, I'll start. on Paul Hoffman. I have been now, since 2007, the Senior Pastor of Evangelical Friends Church of Newport. And I've authored two books. I'm PhD, university of Manchester. And most importantly, I've been following Jesus since a sophomore in high school. Have a lovely wife named Autumn and two teenage sons. So pray for me. Mm. One is a senior, his name's Landon Hoffman. And the other is a seventh grader named Kellen Hoffman.
2: Thanks for having us, Nick. My name is Matt Kim and I've been a pastor for 10 years and I was on faculty at Gordon-Conwell for 10 years. And most recently joined the, the faculty at Truett Seminary at Baylor University. And I'm married to Sarah for almost 21 years. And we have three boys, Ryan, Evan, Aiden, who are
1: 15, 13, and 11. Wow. Excellent. And I know that both of you, your specialty is really preaching. Is that correct? Yes. Preaching and practical theology for me.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Mine's preaching and mission studies. My PhD thesis was on urban missions or missiology. But yeah, I tend to focus on practical theology,
1: leadership, preaching. So Paul, you did your PhD in the UK. Did you do any of your other theology studies in the UK?
0: No, that was it. I did my undergrad at Gordon College and my MDiv at Gordon Conwell, which is actually where I met Dr. Kim.
1: Oh, cool. Well, the reason I ask is because I've done both my degrees in the UK. I did my undergrad in Gloucester, and then I did my postgrad, my master's in integrative theology at London School of Theology. So... I'm probably going to be doing a PhD at some point once my I have teenagers as well, so I'm kind of waiting (laughs) until they get a few years older, and then probably pursuing in the UK. So I'm open to any suggestions you guys might have. But today, I'd like to talk about the book that you wrote. You wrote a book called "Preaching to a Divided Nation." I think it's a really relevant topic. I think that any of us who've been in ministry, or maybe not even just in ministry, but have been alive for the last three years and more, have experienced the fact that. Here in the United States, yeah, we live in a nation that's increasingly divided politically and in other ways as well. So could you just maybe tell some of the story of how this book came about, what you're trying to accomplish with it, and then maybe give a brief overview, then we can dive into some of the specifics. All right. Well, I'm
2: going to start off so that I can give Paul credit for what he deserves to get credit, credit for. So Paul and I have been friends for over 20 years. We met at Gordon-Comwell and... So the relationship goes way back. Uh, He wrote a paper a couple years ago on the need for healing and reconciliation, unity for the Evangelical Homiletic Society. And the paper was awarded the Wilhite Award, which is in honor of Keith Wilhite, who passed away years ago. He was one of the co-founders of the Society with Dr. Scott Gibson. And so in honor of Keith Wilhite, there's an annual award for what people saw as the most effective, best paper. And so Paul received that honor for his paper. And later on, Paul asked if I would consider writing a book with him on the topic. So that, that's basically the genesis of what happened. I would say that the most important thing that we're trying to hope for and pray for is unity in the church and overcoming some of the obstacles that have really hampered the the Christian church in America and beyond. This This book can easily be applicable to other contexts as well. So that's that's the goal. That's the hope. It's not just limited to preaching. We we hope it's a, a ministry book that others can read in the church, not just pastors. But those are some of the things that we're hoping to accomplish.
0: I was going to add, just Matt and I, we've been friends since seminary. I think we met in 2001. So maybe 2000, graduated both from Gordon-Conwell. And so we've maintained that friendship over the years. And we've shared this inter-ethnic friendship. Where I've tried to learn more about his life and his experience. And As you may be aware, Matt is an expert in preaching and doing ministry, uh, utilizing cultural intelligence, and he really advanced that idea. So I wanted to do the project with him because we've had this friendship. But also he brings sterling insights through his award-winning book, Preaching with Cultural Intelligence, about how we can understand others, relate to others, build bridges, and just do life and ministry together in the way that God had intended so, yeah, Matt and I, like a lot of other Americans, have just been crushed, demoralized, disappointed by the divisions that have been roiling the church and the wider society. And it's painful because we see the church mirroring. And sometimes it seems the worse is church. Excuse me, the church is worse than what's going on in the society. Sometimes it appears we're more, more polarized, actually, than the outside world. So it is our heart that that the body of Christ would come together and not be divided. And that's why we wrote the book is to create a seven step pathway that we believe that not only just preachers, but ministry leaders, people that care about the gospel, you know, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, people that lead in non-for-profits. It's not just you know people that preach every Sunday, but to create a pathway based on the gospel that would equip people to be able to close some of the gaps and to really rally around the gospel, the mm. core beliefs of our faith because that's what holds us together as far as of Christ is our faith in Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, Paul, that's really good and you know, before we get into that seven step pathway, do you either of you have any stories that you'd like to share, I mean, of ways that you experienced or saw division particularly within the church over these last and it's probably even more than just the last 3 years, just feels really acute for the last 3 years.
0: Yeah. So, Hastering, you know, the last couple election cycles, you know, as you know, Nick has just been crazy, especially around the presidential elections, um, although it seems like the you know midterm elections are getting more and more fraught. But it was especially the election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump that I saw this really come to a head. And I'll never forget, it was when the Access Hollywood tape uh, first came out where Trump was talking to Billy Bush and he was describing things that were just horrific and inappropriate and frankly, crimes. And so I was just, first off, I was chagrined. It's three weeks before the election. This thing is 10, 12 years old. Why is it coming out now? But then when I heard the content of the tape, I was so disgusted and I felt pastorally as a leader, I should say something. And my wife said, don't do it, Paul. And she's, as you can tell, she's way more wise than I am. But my wife said, Paul, don't post anything. I said, well, I'm a pastor. Like, I'm not going to talk about who I'm voting for, but something should be said about this gross language that's being used describing women and what, you know, Trump claims to be doing to women or whatever the case was, whether it's bragging issue or not. So I just put out a link and I just, you know, put a couple of hashtags, disgusting, inappropriate, wrong. And it started the, the craziest chain on Facebook I've ever seen. And I actually had a, a pastor acquaintance who was taking two of my parishioners to task. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't believe it because doesn't even you know who these people are. And they were going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And after an hour of this thing just playing out, I told my wife, you're right, I'm going to have to delete this. So I went in, I deleted it. But what shocked me was how perfect strangers were just railing on each other. People that were openly identifying as Christians were railing on each other over a political candidate. Mm. And our partisan politics do matter. We don't shy away from that in the book, but the way that Christians would treat one another because of their commitment to one candidate or the other shocked me. And it wasn't like vote for this one or vote for that one. I was just simply trying to comment on the content of a recording and what was said. And so eventually that pastor apologized to me behind the scenes. And I think we we cleaned it up. But the other astonishing thing was the first two people to defend the president's remarks were actually women. Mm-hmm. And that astonished me that women would come out and defend this candidate. And the first thing they said is, oh, so you're voting for the other side. And I tried to say, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just commenting strictly on the content. So the way that whole unfolded and the heat around that, I think, really showed me we're we're in some trouble here. The church is deeply divided mm-hmm. and something needs to be done.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, Nick, we also address class, ethnicity, and gender. So those are some of the other topics that we discuss in the book. So I, I would say that all of them, we have seen plenty of news articles on all of those different topics. So uh, as we consider going forward what what's going to happen in the church, obviously we can't safeguard the church from all these different dynamics and and issues of struggle and power and control and uh, just basic disagreements. But at the same time, I, I believe, and Paul believes, that the pulpit is a place where we can demonstrate leadership and to show the church that the Bible does speak clearly and we don't have to be malicious or or difficult toward each other simply because we disagree on certain topics. And so the the unity of in Christ supersedes all these divisions.
1: Yeah, that's really good. And I and I want to talk about that more and I I want to get into your pathway, but I just want to comment briefly that I had several friends during the pandemic who, you know, navigated it in different ways. I felt that here in our church, we actually navigated it pretty well. We you know, there were a few people who might've left our church over over different things, but it was really very, very minimal. In, in fact, mm-hmm. I felt that, and we commented on our staff, you know, afterwards that really felt that we navigated that season well, but I saw other people who I'm sure that they had very good intentions in how they navigated it, but I saw that their, the way their responses to racial things, their responses to the pandemic, et cetera led really, in some cases, to the ending of their church. I I knew one church that was, you know, about six or 700 people and closed within two years because of these things. I I knew others where, you know, it led to big divisions in the church, staff members quitting, taking people with them, and it just really saw so much damage done to the body of Christ through some of these things. And, um, yeah, and I, I guess I have a lot of questions over, like, you know, what are the best ways to handle it? And and at what point is it our job as pastors to speak into the situations that are going on in society versus saying, hey, we don't let society's, you know, the thing that everyone's outraged about today dic- dictate what we talk about from the pulpit. And so I think there's some balance in there and some tension that I'd like to discuss. But could you tell me about your seven-step pathway for promoting reconciliation and unity? Yeah. We
0: start with the theological step, Nick. So the theological step, you know, we're both committed theologians, committed Christians. And for us, we have a high view of scripture. And so you have to start with the gospel. In our, in our estimation, there's no other place to start than God's word and God's story. And so in the theological step, we actually lay out a five-part narrative for understanding scripture through what we call a reconciling narrative. Fundamentally, scripture can be understood as God's reconciling story. So, you know, that starts with the Trinity. And you've studied in the UK. You know that in the UK, in my experience, they had a, and as did Dr. Kim. Dr. Kim got his PhD from the University of Edinburgh. So maybe later on, there may be, there might be a divide between England and Scotland and the universities there. Um, I'm going to win. I'm going to win, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. It's already off the rails. No. So the theological step is critical, but we start with the trinity. And when I studied over in the UK, there was such an amazing emphasis on the trinity, the trinity in say, the social trinity, the inter-trinitarian relations that I don't remember. And this may be my flaw, but I don't remember digging into as much when i in my undergraduate or my graduate studies. And in the UK, it just seemed to permeate everything. And so we want to remind people that the ultimate reality is the nature of God. Right, Nick, you're not the ultimate reality. I'm not the ultimate reality. Matt's not the ultimate reality. God is the ultimate reality, right? He's eternal. Mm -hmm. He's always existed. He's infinite. He's immortal. He is a non-created being. And so the whole book starts off with God. And so God is one being, three persons. And right there, we have an amazing model. Yes, God is one, but we also have, if we can use the word diversity within the unity because you have three persons. So you have three persons, but they're one. And in that relationship is this mutual self-giving, love, service, glorifying one another. Some have referred to it as the divine dance. And so we start there and yet then we, the story moves on, right? Out of the overflow of God's love, we have the first creation. God spoke, everything came into being, everything's going great, right? Genesis one and two, it's beautiful. It co it's good. And then what happens in chapter three, we have the alienation and we have Adam and Eve introducing through their rebellion, sin and death into the world and the way that God has to address that. And then from there, the story moves on to God choosing this nation of Israel, right? To be a light and a witness to the nations. And then out of Israel comes Jesus Christ, the one who is the fulfillment of the nation of Israel, who does what they can never do. He fully obeys the law and fulfills the scriptures. And so that's the reconciliation. That's the fourth movement, right? When that's where we're in now, we are in the the season of reconciliation where the, the body of Christ now has received the Holy Spirit has this mystery and message of reconciliation. But then, Nick, as you and I know, we can read ahead to the end of the story. And one day, there'll be the new heavens and the new earth. And so there'll be the new or final creation. So we believe the Bible can be understood in this five different... A narrative structure between creator, first creation, alienation, reconciliation, and final creation. And if we understand the Bible that way, I think we'll be better equipped as Christians to understand why reconciliation matters so much to God, mm-hmm. because this is God's story. This is what the Holy Scriptures point toward.
1: Great. And so, okay, that's the first step, the theological Question to ask: Understanding the Bible as a narrative, which has a, as its culmination the the reconciliation of all things in Christ, right? Like in Ephesians one. So, what's the second step in this process?
2: Yeah. So the contextual step is really an investigation, exploration of the pastor and the pastor's leadership, and trying to understand the what we're calling, borrowing from other scholars, the historical intelligence of a community. So. Uh, not relying on just hearsay or anecdotes, but really trying to learn about the culture, the, the history, the primary events that have impacted that region or a town, city, state, what have been some of the major issues in that, in that context, both positive and negative. So one thing that I don't see too much of these days, I don't know if you do, Nick, but a lot of churches don't really keep church minutes anymore for meetings, <laughs> but in the olden days they did. And so if if you were able to have a church, historic church, where people did take minutes, it'd be good to read those mm. and think through, you know, what have been some of the concerns in this church? What what has divided people? Mm. What are some of the issues that have caused splits and et cetera? So not just that, but looking at the newspaper in, in your local town. So reading that, understanding the culture, climate of your own community, and then thinking through local idols. Mm-hmm. and. Who are the, the the major people that, or or events, or things, or companies that that hold people captive? So these are just some considerations that we want to think about contextually, so that we're not misinformed or uninformed as we enter this task. Okay,
1: cool. Yeah, let's keep going. What are, what's the next step after that?
2: Yeah. So then we
0: have the third step, which we call Nick the personal step, and this has to do with us as speakers, us as ministry leaders we're trying to build out this idea of what we call homiletical maturity, but we could also just call it spiritual maturity. And the the idea, right, is Second Corinthians chapter 3, that we're to be made into the imago Christi, the image of Jesus Christ. God is going to restore the fullness of his image in us and conform us to the image of Jesus. That's what maturity looks like. And so we use there Psalm 51 as a template where we can think about three different parts of Psalm 51, and we do a deep dive into Psalm 51, the greatest of the penitential Psalms, right? According to Psalm 51, we see three different ways that God is working in us to grow us simultaneously. First, we see our devotion. That is the upward-facing direction. That is our worship lives. That is our immersing ourselves in Scripture. Lectio Divina, letting the Scriptures speak to us, beholding the Scriptures so that they can do their work deeper than us. And then the second move is the the introspective move. After the devotional move, we have the introspection move, which is more of God, search me and know me. God, search me and help me know myself. Mm -hmm. Help me know my flaws. Help me know my prevailing sins. Help, Help me understand the blind spots that I don't see about myself, right? Jeremiah 17, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Lord, help me understand my wicked heart.
1: And so the purpose of this, right, would just be to question our own motives. Like, okay, if I'm going yes. to talk about anything, or if I'm going to interpret a passage and, or focus on one aspect of it, then why am I doing that? What, what is really going on in my heart? Is that yes. the idea?
0: Yes. And Lord, I don't know if you pray this, Nick, right? You're a pastor in Longmont. You know, Lord, sanctify this vessel, mm. right? I'm, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. God, would you cleanse me? Would you purify me? I don't want to get up there and preach or teach or counsel and be a hypocrite or a vessel that is unfit for your service. And I know we still struggle with sin, but Lord, would you just keep cleansing me and purifying me and sanctifying me so that I will not be a hindrance to the gospel, your truth that you want to speak through me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this step is all about that. And then we also talk about the importance of community. I need accountable community. I need Matthew Kim. Mm-hmm. To hold me accountable to be a reconciler, I need Nick, Katie, I need you to hold me accountable and to call me out if I'm being divisive or there's some clear sin that maybe I can't see about myself. And so, in the back of the book, we actually provide a an integrity covenant for those that want to enter intentional relationships with so those who are different than them and be a part of a growing community where we iron sharpens iron. Mm-hmm. So that that's the whole third chapter, the personal step is about God purifying us as his proclamatory vessels, as his proclaimers of truth.
1: Okay. Yeah. I know your fourth step was the positional question, which is really, if I understand it correctly, and please tell me if I do, is just that we understand that our job as a preacher or proclaimer of God's truth is really to faithfully deliver the message. And then what happens in the heart and mind of the hearer is really a a thing that goes on between them and the Holy Spirit. It's not necessarily anything that we can do. We just need to communicate clearly what God's showing us. Yeah, I had a question about that one because, you know, I've heard that sometimes portrayed. I'm not sure that it was good, but basically they would say this, you know, as a preacher, how other people respond or react to what you say, that's on them your job as a preacher is just to be faithful and sometimes i see it as like people will use that almost as an excuse to be poor communicators or to be maybe unkind or or rude and uh, they'll say well you know if other people took it the wrong way that's on them i'm just doing what god says well, what would you say is a uh yeah how do we not get that to that place like how do we inoculate ourselves against using this truth as an excuse for being rude, lazy or or unkind, I don't know.
2: Yeah, I I think Nick your your question is important for the positional step. At the same time, we do talk about some of those aspects in the in the practical step. Mm. So, how do we actually deliver sermons that are gracious and charitable and encouraging, giving both sides of the argument rather than just dominating with our voice and our perspective? So, you're absolutely right. We don't want to do sloppy exegesis or speak negatively or poorly about people who disagree with us and, and definitely won't don't want to malign them or, or make them feel badly or get them upset in any, in, in any shape or form. So we want to be winsome and encouraging and loving and gracious at the same time, uh, present multiple views. And I think that one of the areas I think evangelical culture struggles is that we often are just so bent on our own perspective or we might be insecure. And so we don't want to know what the other party thinks. We don't want to know really what arguments are there for them to be able to support their claims. We're just shoving down our our ideas and our perspectives because of insecurity or because we're um, believing that we're in the right. Mm -hmm. So we we do want to be careful, like you're saying, Nick, we want to be careful how we preach, how we present the gospel, how we present each passage of scripture that we're preaching on so that, uh, yeah, as best as, possible from our perspective, we don't want to offend unnecessarily. Yeah. And along those lines, just to add to that, Nick, if
0: I may, that chapter, we're just talking about ultimately the only the Holy Spirit can change your heart. Mm-hmm. Only the Holy Spirit can, get, can expose to someone their ethnocentrism or racism, their prejudice, reveal it to them, bring conviction to them and cause them to repent of it. So we really try and amplify the role of the Holy Spirit, but not to the extent that I think we'd give cover to people that just want to be mean and then mm. say, well, that's your problem if you don't like the gospel, because as Matt said, we do talk about tone later on. But at the same time in the chapter, we're trying to engage this idea that, you know, in American culture we do have a, a fixation with metrics mm. and with outcomes and with nickels and noses, as the old saying, right? Attendance and giving and and so we can also, if we're not careful, try and force outcomes or try and, you know, manipulate people to get what we want. And I know this is one of the critiques of Finney's revivalism, mm-hmm. right? Some of the ways that Finney looked at revival and tried to create these like templates for how we can do it. I hope now you don't get a lot of crazy feedback or blowback mm-hmm. and emails from Finney Finney fans, because I'm not against Finney, but I know that's a valid critique of his yeah. revivalistic approaches and methods. But no, we just try and exalt, this is what the Holy Spirit, the sovereign spirit of God can do. And yet at the same time, That means we need to focus on what we have authority over, which is good exegesis, praying and preparing our hearts, clear and clean delivery, careful, thoughtful, compassionate delivery. But then if we've done everything that we can do, it's give it over to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit do what only he can do. So we're trying to navigate a little bit of a um, a narrow path. In that chapter, but also give hope that this is something that God can do, but we do at the same time need to to seek the unction right i don 't know if you know that old word the unction sure, sure of the Holy Spirit. we need that so desperately, and especially in these times we need god 's spirit to to take what we have, put his fire, put his blessing on it, and speak through these broken vessels, and then mm-hmm. bring the change that only God can bring
1: yeah, that's good, so Dr. Kim, I, I heard you use the word um winsomeness. Now, I I don't know if you're familiar with this whole thing that's been going on in some streams of evangelicalism recently, but where I'm located, there's somebody nearby who's had quite a loud voice and he's really going against the idea of winsomeness and critiquing it and and that whole idea. And basically the critique kind of goes like this. We need to stop being nice to people who are wrong and we need to just kind of, if they're wrong, then we should tell them that they're wrong. And if they don't like it, then that's their problem. And uh, it's kind of I think it's a it's kind of a pendulum swing maybe from some of the things that were popular as far as evangelism and preaching in the past few years. Now now it's getting some pushback and it's getting some momentum. But I personally I, I don't feel comfortable with the the tone that they're taking. I think they're kind of using this thing that even they, they would use that positional step, as I mentioned, as as an excuse for saying, well, of course people who Don't like God, are going to be mad, and we should not care. We should not try to bend to them in order to please them. Rather, they should just kind of deal with it. And if they don't like it, then that's to their own condemnation. I mean, what would the two of you have to say to somebody who is leaning that way or having those thoughts?
2: Well, one of the the topics we talk about in the book is pride and maybe a self righteous attitude and sometimes we are not willing to wrestle with other people's ideas because because of that attitude of being needing to be right and also the the sin of pride uh, you know we there's so many things that doctrinally professing Christians can agree upon and and that will actually get us to the methodological step in a little bit but really what we want to do is have the humility to to say there are certain topics that we don't know about. We don't have an answer. It, and it is arrogant for us to say, yes, I know what God thinks about every issue. And, and, and yet there are certain doctrinal truths, whether they're in the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed or the, the different creeds, that point us to the direction of where do we overlap, where, where can we be unified? And in those areas where we're not so sure, where, where there are gray areas, or uncertainties? Do we have the humility humility to say, I may not agree with you, but here's my perspective. I understand your perspective and a willingness to learn. And when we don't have that posture of learning or wanting to understand the other side, could we grow in humility to be able to say, I do need to learn. I do need to grow. Maybe I don't have all the right answers. So those are some attitudinal perspectives that we hope people in, in that camp that you're explaining what it would have, including ourselves. Mm. Yep. Uh, yeah, That's so good. Yeah.
0: One of the things we addressed just to add to what Matt's saying is the idol of rightness. Mm-hmm. This was actually Matt's, the idol of rightness. I'm right. You're wrong, which can become very arrogant. And for me, I'm not beyond the core of the gospel, the apostles' creed and the Nicene creed. I hold those, th- those to me. You try and take out those elements there, the nature of Jesus Christ, right? The authority of scripture, the Trinity, the bodily resurrection. You take out the core. You're, I, I will defend that to the death. But secondary matters, right? About baptism, the nature of the Lord's Supper, Holy Eucharist, right? Women in ministry, should women be ordained or not ordained? What should their role be in the church? A lot of these issues to us are secondary issues, these are not hills that we believe Christians should die on because they're good. Christians can have a high view of scripture. They can hold to the essentials of the faith and disagree about some of these matters. But when people have this attitude and I don't, I just kind of came up with this idea of shock jock preachers, right? The mm-hmm. shock jock pre- preachers that come out, you know, th- this was how the rise, the fall of Mars Hill, right? Mark yeah. Driscoll, he came out and he was just very combative, very confrontational. I, I don't see that a lot in scripture, except for the prophets that called out the people that were wicked, that were literally oppressing the poor, literally worshiping idols. I don't see Jesus doing this except for when he's calling out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elites that, again, were holding power. And those who were less fortunate, they were just stomping on them or shoving them aside. And Jesus could see through their their, their thinly veiled piety to their arrogance. Um, I would just be very cautious as a Christian to think that I'm one of the Old Testament prophets or I have the standing of Jesus to go after people. Now, having said that, I think Matt and I would agree and we try and present this in the book, we can hold to our convictions, but do so graciously and say, respectfully, this is where I might disagree with so-and-so. We don't hold this position, but you know, I still respect and honor this person that might not hold this secondary view or I still respect this other person made in God's image, even if they don't believe the gospel, I still believe this person has an inherent dignity and value because they are made in God's image. And I believe in my tradition that Jesus Christ died on the cross for that person's sins. So I, I think we as Christians uh, need to be careful. In your case, Nick, if you have a relationship with this person, I don't know if you could talk to this person behind the scenes and say, hey, do you know you're coming across this way? And that, you know, are, are you trying to reflect Christ? what is your motivation here? Do you know you come across this way? I'm confused. I'm perplexed. I'm just curious as to why you, you have this tone. I might agree with some of what you're saying, but your tone comes across very strident. Could mm-hmm. you explain that to me and try and have that conversation gently behind the scenes? And the reason I've learned that is I have a lot of phenomenal, Nick, a lot of military. I don't know if you have some you know, retired active duty yeah. military in your church, but I've learned from them. You praise publicly, you criticize privately. Mm-hmm. That's just good leadership.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great point. So let me, before we go, and I do want to finish out the seven, and maybe maybe some of them will actually come up in what I share with you next. So I just kind of thought through, like, what are some of the principles that we followed as a church that I felt helped us navigate well? And of course, mm-hmm. a lot of this applied to our preaching and, and other, other communication that we did. So I, I would say the number one thing that I really taught our church during this time was you know Ephesians four it says that we are to strive to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace in the body of Christ, and then that leads into a, a, something else that I would call a principle, which was that I said that we have a higher calling than to be right about every little thing that we think, and at the time, you know we we come from a tradition with Calvary Chapel where our focus is on teaching through books of the Bible, and I felt that that actually in a way saved us from experiencing a lot of difficulties because you know, we, we weren't scrambling every week to come up with something clever to say the next week. We really just worked through books of the Bible. And that's, that actually is so nice in a way. And I think it, was, it provided a bit of an oasis for people. Because I think that, you know, it can become so tiring hearing of the constant news cycle. And, yeah. you know, I, I walk into so many people's homes and they just have TV news just going on in the background constantly. I know it goes on in their cars, podcasts. It goes on everywhere. And so to be able to come into church and know, we're going to be just studying through the scriptures verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. But as you do that, of course, as you both well know, in any given passage, there are multiple directions that you can take or things that you can focus on. But I felt that studying through 1 Corinthians was just such a godsend at that time, because here you have Paul explaining, guys, we have a higher calling as the people of God than just these little factions that you're creating over stuff yeah. that ultimately doesn't matter in light of eternity. And so that was a big one. And we would use that phrase a lot, right? So we're going to strive for unity, strive for yeah. to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we're going to remember that we have a higher calling than just being right about pandemic or politics or race. Oh. And our calling is to the mission of God. Everything else is going to be secondary. And so then, then a few other things I mentioned to people were hey, you know, none of us have been through this before. Like, let's give each other some grace and patience. Like, it's my first time going through a pandemic, and I know it's all yours too. So how about we have some humility in the midst of this? And and also kind of having a longer view that says, hey, in a few years when this is over, are you going to be embarrassed about the way that you conducted yourself? Mm-hmm. And so just kind of thinking about that, are you going to be glad about it? And um, yeah, I think those are kind of like the main... Main principles. The other one was to remember that politics in the United States is a bit of a game. And it's a game to show the other side as being extreme to say, okay, it's not like we're that close. We have to be extreme in order to say, Well, if you're not voting for us, then you're voting for all these other things and just say, Hey, you know, this is a game. It's on a four year cycle and and it's actually more like a like a six month to one year cycle. Right. So Let's just show each other some grace in that. I felt that those were good principles. I mean, how do those principles compare to some of the seven steps or questions that you propose?
2: Yeah, well, I think that going to the the practical step, we're really thinking through how do we receive perception from others? So, for example, I may think I'm right, but how do I present myself in the midst of even though I think I'm right? how do I treat the other person? Thinking through the, the second greatest commandment of loving our neighbor as ourself. We're not taught that when we watch election cycles. The, the the typical communicator of a government official candidate is basically slandering and making the other person look bad and not really addressing the issues that are presented to them in the questions. That's not what we're, That's not the attitude that we want to have as we're preaching or pastoring people. We want to show, like Paul was saying earlier, dignity, respect. Do we honor the other person in some way verbally? Is there anything positive about them or is it just that one issue that we disagree with? And that's the focal point. That person, as Paul said, was in, made in the image of God. And by us treating them pejoratively and in a negative light, simply because of a differing perspective. That seems a little bit uncharitable to me in terms of what Christ would want us to do and to be. So absolutely, Nick, I think your, your principles were excellent. And there are things that we're all growing in. It's not like because you write a book, you, you have mastered any of these things. We're all on the journey together. And there are plenty of mistakes I've made, and I share some of them in the book. And we grow together in this. And I think you're absolutely right that we need, we need to be able to show each other some more grace. We're all going to make mistakes we we haven't gone through a pandemic. We haven't gone through a perfect election because there is none.
0: Yeah. And Nick, I just want to commend you personally, because you shared some, that was some great, thoughtful, biblical yeah. advice and principles. And I think that is similar, you know, not knowing you very well, you shared, you echoed a lot of stuff that we put in the book. And so the whole idea of the higher calling, we talked about that in the fifth step, the methodological step, the whole idea of let's focus on centered sets rather than bounded sets. The problem is we tend to focus on what divides us first, which is starting on the wrong end of the issue. And biblically, the whole idea of the higher calling is awesome because we recognize our citizenship, right? As the Apostle Paul Philippines say, our citizenship is in heaven. And so our higher calling is that our citizenship is not to the earth as it's currently constituted. There will be a new heaven coming down to a new earth, but we need to recognize that ultimately we must give account of our lives to God, not to our political party not to our neighbors, not to opinion polls, but we give account to God. And so, yeah, in the book we talk about, we need to, when we talk about divisive issues, it's best to start with reminding people what unites us. And first we remind people that we have shared doctrines. We have a shared core gospel, right? We have the shared, the, the faith of thousands of years. We talk about that. We talk about shared identity. Nick, you're not just a person. You're my, you're my brother in Christ. If we're Christians, you're my brother. The people in your church, if they're in Christ, they're your brothers and sisters. They're not just an opposing political party or whatever. So we have a shared identity, right? John 15, we are, there's one true vine and we are branches in the true vine. We are connected to Christ. And so that is our identity. And then we talk about shared mission, which Matt already alluded to or referenced, the great commandment great commission. My understanding, Nick, is every single Christian is called to love God, love your neighbors, yourself, and to make and multiply disciples. That's how I read scripture. Every single Christian, we need to be focusing on that mission, not on who this one voted for and that one voted for. And then fourth, Matt does a great job of this in the book, the idea of empathy. We've all experienced pain and loss. We've all experienced, as I understand it, various forms of prejudice, rejection. And instead of focusing on, you know, what form of prejudice or rejection, can we show empathy to one another and say, you know what, I, I, I've experienced loss. I've experienced rejection. Uh, I'm so sorry, you know, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And here's how maybe it's shown up in my life. It might not be the same as you, but I've felt that kind of sting. Mm. And I think when, when God's people start focusing on that higher calling, right, of doctrine and identity and mission and shared human experience, I think the church will be
1: stronger. Mm. That's great. Yeah. I The one burning question I have for both of you is this, and it's something that I think maybe that's not just one clean answer, but let's, let's ask it. So how do you determine when is a good time to address a social hot button issue? And one of the other times when it's like, you know what, I'm just going to teach the Bible. And sometimes I think you can feel as a pastor that pressure, like you were saying, like, I'm a pastor, I have to comment on this. But then who gets to dictate what the thing is that we're all commenting on today? Is it the news media? What is it? You know, like, I think there can be part. So there's part of me that says, yes, I I don't want to live like where everybody in society is talking about one thing and I'm not bringing the word of God into it. On the other hand, I also don't want to feel like a monkey at the circus who's told to jump through hoops and I just have to do what other people are dictating to me and get caught up in this whole thing. And then sometimes, right, isn't there some wisdom in just, like, waiting a minute before and seeing, like, how things, how things ride out? Anyway, so how would you speak into that? What, what guidelines can we use to know when to speak into things and when to just not?
2: Well, thankfully, Nick, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, and we're able to pray. So one of the key contributors to this process that we talk about in the book is prayer. And we call people, not just the pastor to pray, we call the whole church to pray. And that will help soften people's hearts. As, as Paul alluded to earlier, only the Holy Spirit can change us. So one one distinguishing thing that we want to make sure that we're clear about is that I don't even think we need to create entire sermon series on these different isms that we're talking about. Rather, when the text talks about these issues, that would be a natural time to discuss them. Mm. We're not conjuring up or coming up with, like you're saying, following everyone else's trends, but we're really praying and having our leadership pray. And as the pastor, I would even ask my leadership, do you think I should preach about this? Should we teach about this? Should we have small groups about this? If not, when's a good time or if ever? So it's not like we're asking for preachers to stop their book studies Stop in Ephesians two and say, "Now we're going to be talking about one of these isms." Rather, if the text, for example, if you're preaching on Romans thirteen and government comes up, then that would be a natural place to talk about this, and, and and so on in terms of gender and ethnicity, class, and all the different divisions that present in society. So, those are a couple of things to think about as we're we're considering this process. But the number one thing is to pray.
0: Hmm. Amen. And just to add to that, as Matt was saying, just to accentuate God, talk to your elders, staff, core leaders, should I address this? You know, this is burning on my heart. Is this just a thing or, or should like, how, how's the church doing? Is, is also a big question. Talking to people in the church community group or small group leaders, ministry leaders, like, Hey, do, do I need to address this? Is this, is this a deeper thing? Because I think you're right, Nick, the danger is every week. It's like I'm preaching out of whatever the craziest headline was. And we don't want to do that because we know the scriptures address in the, the, at least in the very broadest terms, the biggest issues that we face in life. They obviously don't address every single peccadillo of this thing that happened over here. But I think you would agree, Nick, we have to walk with our people. We need to know our people. How are they receiving it? How are they perceiving it? Look on social media. Are people outraged? Are people upset? Is there no blip on the screen? I think there's a number of avenues of discernment, but I will tell you, Nick, there has been a few times, normally this happens every couple of years, we'll scrap the sermon Mm -hmm. and I'll preach on what's going on. So just to give an example, it was actually COVID. I'll never forget Friday, I'd had this whole sermon done. And then I found out that uh, everything was shutting down. It was Friday the 13th. And so I just preached like, we don't know what's going on here, but I preached out of the Psalms. We know God is good. We know God is sovereign and we need to press in and trust them right now even when we don't know what's going on there's this dangerous virus that appears to be spreading and is causing all this havoc so i uh, we don't do it all the time but when i when i do it it does send a message to the church like this is serious yeah how about you is there a way you discern Nick, how you address yeah. topics hot topics
1: yeah good one i think i've only done that once it was in when the shooting happened in Newtown in 2013 at Christmas or is Same it 2012? Here. Yeah. I had my sermon and I was preaching through the four you know topics of Advent. So I was on the week of joy. And then this mm. thing happened like right before Christmas. It was just so incredibly horrific that I ended up writing a whole sermon and, and addressing it and bringing the gospel into how do we have joy? How can you have joy when things like this go on in our world? And mm. I mean, it, it's very, the gospel speaks to that. It's very clear. One of the ways that we've recently started addressing some of these things is through we introduce a pastoral prayer. Kind of Mark Dever, you know, really advocates for this idea. So we have one of our pastors, he opens a service every week in a pastoral prayer. And it's often during those prayers that he'll address, you know, praying for our nation, praying for families who are suffering if there's a flood somewhere, these kinds of things. And I found it's a nice way for us to be able to address these things and and really lead our people through them because these people are coming in with these things heavy on their hearts and one of the one of the things maybe they don't need to hear someone instruct them about it i'm not saying they don't ever need that but in some cases they don't need someone to instruct them about it as much as perhaps they need someone to just pray with them through it and lead them in a prayer through it so that's been how we've been addressing it a lot lately but I do realize that it's not just one answer. And yes, thank you, Lord, for giving us your spirit to lead us in into all truth. So we, we've addressed the methodological. Let's, let's talk about the final two steps in this seven-step process.
2: Yeah, let me just quickly go through the practical then. Pre-sermon, mid-sermon, and post-sermon practices are simply things to keep in mind as we're preparing the sermon, as we're delivering the sermon. And some of the backlash or response of the congregation post-sermon, and being able to navigate some of the things that may come up if you do preach on one of the isms that may cause some additional need for pastoral care. So uh, these are some of the practices that we offer, and uh, they're just a few reminders for each category. What do I do before the sermon? What do I do while I'm preaching in the midst of it? And one of those things that we did talk about was tone and body language and word choice things like that and then post sermon. How do we have a town hall meeting? How do we have a small group ministry that talks about these sermons? How do we have recognition that the the evil one is going to want to divide? Mm-hmm. And so how do we pray against that? So these are some of the practices that we were are encouraging in that chapter.
0: Yeah. And the final chapter, yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's just category. So the categorical Matt and I created a comp- a small compendium of um, here some and we think the exegesis is sound. But here are some topics. If you want to talk about unity, here's some passages. You want to talk about reconciliation? Here's some passages. You want to talk about sexism? So at the end, we try and give people passages that could, you know, they could teach from and preach from these
1: passages that address those issues. Hmm. Very good. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And if anyone is interested in your book, again, it's called Preaching to a Divided Nation. And what I'm guessing is, and please speak into this, I pastored for 10 years in Hungary, and I know mm-hmm. that you probably have experience outside the U.S. as well. So any thoughts like, does this apply only for people reading in the U.S.? I mean, does this apply elsewhere as well?
2: Yeah, I well, think, I think it's a, a, I think it's a universal problem. Yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah, Very
1: true.
2: Yeah,
0: I think our book, I mean, our book, because we don't want to be presumptuous. We don't know everything about there is to know about the world, although Matt and I spent a lot of time overseas. We wanted to say we do understand the American context. Uh, However, I do believe Matt and I would agree that this book has a lot of applicability. There's a lot of biblical principles and ideas that we carry over to other nations and other contexts. And I would love for the book to do well enough that maybe one day we do get asked to do a non-Western version or maybe an international version, because I do think a lot of what we say here could be applicable to the body of Christ all over the place. So yeah, we do think there's a lot of carryover.
1: Good. But Dr. Kim, final word for our listeners? Well, I just want you to know that
2: as now an academic, I, I have been very, very mindful of how hard ministry has been over these last several years in particular. And so I want you to know that one of the things that I try to practice is prayer for pastors. So thank you for your service and ministry to the kingdom. And even though I'm not currently serving in a church, I know that pastors are some of my favorite people that I want to encourage because I've been there and I've been through the struggle and I didn't struggle through the pandemic being a pastor, but I know how challenging it was for for so many. So thank you. I'm praying for you and we pray for unity that, that we can live out the, the beautiful vision that Jesus prayed
1: for in John 17. Amen. Dr. Hoffman, Dr. Kim, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. If there's ever a topic you'd like to learn more about, there's a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics for me to cover. That can be found at nickkady.org. That's N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. That way, whenever new episodes are posted, they'll be delivered right to your podcast app. And if this episode was helpful, please share it with others. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is by sharing with others or by leaving a written review on either the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify. That's a recent addition to Spotify, so I would be honored if you would go over there and leave a written review and a rating for this episode and for the podcast as a whole. If you do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and until next time, God bless you.